Taking you inside the world of music, this is Inside Music Cast with Rick Such and Eddie Cabello. On this episode, Inside Music Cast welcomes Kirk Whalem. Welcome to Inside Music Cast, the podcast that sheds new light on the world of music. That means that we peel back the obvious and let you see music from the inside out. I'm Eddie Cabello. And I'm Rick Such. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Inside Music Cast. As Eddie mentioned, Inside Music Cast will take you inside the mind of the musician and allow you to get a special, up-close glimpse of the music-making process. So if you're a fan or even a musician, this is where you want to be. That's right. This is the podcast that takes you beyond the stage and into the studio and features the people that make music happen. So if you're ready, let's get started. For a young boy growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, exposure to gospel, soul, jazz, and R&B music was inevitable. The difference for Kirk Whalem was that his baptismal into this music happened at the church where his father pastored. Surrounded by a family that was comprised of several professional musicians, Kirk didn't have to find music. Music found him. But it was the sparkle and shine that first attracted him to his first saxophone. It was jazz great Bob James that first discovered Kirk playing at a gig in Houston, Texas, where shortly thereafter hired him to play on one of his solo albums entitled Twelve. Today, Whalem humbly tells how divine intervention had a definite hand in his past success and stands on a faith that is clearly contagious. He celebrated 25 years in the business with the release of his 2007 album, Round Trip, and engaged producer Philippe Sace, who worked on his first solo album, along with an amazing lineup of musicians that included Earl Clue and many guest musicians who happen to be family members. Inside Music Cast is happy to welcome a sax virtuoso, Kirk Whalem. Hey, Kirk, thanks for joining us today. It is a pleasure, man, and, and uh, much, uh, much congratulations and success uh, on the site. Oh, thanks. I appreciate Thank it. Thanks. Uh-huh. It's going well so far. <laughs> hey, so I understand um, you and your wife, Ruby, just returned uh, from, from a few days in St. Lucia. How was that? Did you have a good time? Oh, we had a great time. Yeah? In fact, uh, it was one of those gigs that uh, you feel a little guilty taking any money for. Uh, but it <laughs> oh, was, yeah? You know, but we did. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, actually played a birthday party. Uh, a guy who was a huge fan of the music. And, uh-huh. and uh, every year he throws a big birthday party. And, and he's not, you know, he's not the, sort of like a billionaire or anything like that. But uh-huh. he's a guy that loves the music. And he, he it's, a, it's one big splurge every year. And uh, this year was uh, Marcus Miller and Frank McComb and, and, and um, let me see, Eric Essex and myself. We were the splurge. Wow. <laughs> and there were 60 people at the party, by the way. <laughs> Holy cow. Gee whiz. That must have been a fun fun time. We've sort of been talking uh, back and forth with Marcus, try to get him on the show, but uh, he's he's been sort of busy, too. So we're going to have to keep on shaking his trees. I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, I always love playing with Marcus Miller. I mean, I, oh, yeah. I don't know of, of anybody who is uh, as diverse and profound a musician as he is to be so nice, you know. What longevity, right? I mean, the guy is so flexible in the way he... Uh um, do you recall uh, your first gig that you ever uh, you played with him? Oh, absolutely! What yeah, was that? I, I actually toured with Marcus in Japan, and um, you know I had recorded with him on many occasions, uh, especially with Luther Vandross over the years. Uh-huh. But to actually perform with them, I got a big dose of it all at once. We did three weeks together at the Blue Note in Japan. Uh, actually, th- three blue notes in Japan, uh-huh. and it, it, it was incredible. I got a uh, my son's a bass player, and I would just email him and say, "Oh my goodness, I don't think I've ever heard a bass do all of this. I yeah. didn't think it could." You know, he said he told me by the way that he's working on a record with Victor Wooten and Stanley Clark. So oh, wow. I said, "Man, that's some bass notes for you." There. <laughs> no Tell kidding. me about it. Jeez, <laughs> those guys are incredible. You know. <laughs> hey, you know, you really have uh, an amazing website. Eddie and I were uh, checking that out, and, and it's it's really it's one of the most comprehensive uh, sites for a musician that I that I've seen. You know, uh, you know, not only can a visitor to your site explore your musical career, but you have you know you've included a lot of personal interests. You know, from your devotion to Christianity to your blog, politics, and, and you know your podcast, of course. And it, you know, it's a very open look at Kirk Whalem's world. 
Yeah, I appreciate you saying that, man. And, and absolutely, it was a brave new world, as I said. And, and uh, I have to give a lot of props to Ajani Sandridge. And Ajani is a guy that uh, is a, a saxophone player, buddy, who happens to be a little more left brain than most sax players. <laughs> and, um, you know, dare I say, geek uh, with a capital G with, uh, with genius on the same G. Right. But, uh, yeah, he's really done an amazing job with the site. Hey, listen, I've, uh, I've enjoyed, you know, your music so many years. And, um, on a side note, I, I remember the, one of the first vinyl albums that I bought, it was Caché, of course, that, uh, really, um, you know, introduced me to, to your music. But, uh, looking back at the early parts of your career, when, uh, I want to bring up a name, and it's Bob James, who was essentially a key in unlocking the door to, to, to your career in, in, in a way. But it wasn't long after Bob James that uh, that you met him that, that you started to work with him. And I believe one of the albums that uh, uh, you started working with Bob was an album, a very famous album called 12. Tell us a little bit about that with uh, Bob James and, and how, how sort of it all began with uh, The Open Doors. Sure. Well, it's, a very, it's a very good question and an astute introduction into how I actually started recording uh, mm-hmm. on a national and international level. And that was through... Uh, Bob James by having been discovered by him and literally and, and I don't know if that happens as much anymore um, sure. but it, it, it was literally that where I was playing I described on my on KirkWhalem.com that we were I was playing in a local club in Houston having not even quite graduated college yet but um, we were serious about it in other words uh, the scripture that I talk about you know be faithful in the small things and you the God will basically promote you sure. uh, to bigger things uh, that's what I was doing and I didn't really have so much an eye to um, you know to networking and all of that I, I, it was more so about really I, I wanted to to be down with the thing that I had in my hand at the time mm-hmm. to really do it well and not take anything for granted and therein is how um, you get discovered. And I didn't know that, but but I found out, you know, that really people they can tell, you know, and mm-hmm. and that's what happened. Bob heard me. Oh, I opened a concert for him there in Houston. And the rest is history. Literally two weeks later, I was in New York. He was finishing up a new record called Twelve, and mm-hmm. he heard me, and I, I ended up being the addendum to that record. Yeah. And then, you know, really kind of, you know, that that was it. He recorded a song I wrote for my wife called Ruby, 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 which, mm-hmm. of course, is on, on our new record, yeah, Round sure. 2. Right, right. And um, a redone version of it. And um, that was it. I mean, 1984 was when I recorded with him. Early 85, man, I'm like touring the world. I, I went to Japan for the first time. I had been to Europe, you know, as a student, but now I'm there, you know, touring and all over the place, man, mm-hmm. and um, that that was a, a a big moment for me. Yeah, can you believe that that was that was almost twenty five years ago, man? Well, that's actually one of the reasons we did this round trip record and to 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 kind of explore that concept. Uh-huh, okay, that, you know, my career is now you know twenty five years to say that um you know that I was actually. You talk about people who are quote unquote smooth jazz artists. I don't know if you know what that really means, but sure, to say right. you know contemporary jazz that has an R and B base to it. Yeah. Um, how many folks can say they've been making records twenty five? My first record came out on vinyl. Okay, so did the <laughs> second and third. <laughs> so you know, for me, um, this is a celebration of you know longevity. You kind of say, well, this is really a blessing. So. We wanted to do a project that 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 uh, that really that significantly, I guess I should say, qualitatively um, celebrated that tangibly, I should say, where we went back and took some of those songs, even a song or two that had never been recorded, um, to celebrate and t- sort of reimagine those songs uh, for people to to kind of go on this little round trip with us back to where I started. Yeah, but let's go back a little bit before that time in 1983, and this is. You know, prior to landing your, your break with Bob James, and you know you had a you had a band, and you were really making your mark there on the jazz scene in, in Houston, Texas. And, and during that phase of your young career, how how difficult was it to find you know good gigs that, that made ends meet? And, and yeah. were there were there plenty of clubs and opportunities in Houston at that time to keep things steady for you? Oh my goodness, yes! And it just so happens again, God's sovereignty that um, we were doing just that. The um, the early 80s, I mean, that's when the the oil boom 
uh, happened in True. in Texas. And Houston was just, I mean, it was money everywhere. And yeah. I was trying to finish college, but similar to my son right now where, you know, he, he can't quite finish college because he's working so much. You know, that's a good problem to have. But um, only for him, he's in Nashville and he's playing country and, and rock. You know, for me, I was in Houston playing jazz. And, and it, it was, uh, the scene was literally... I, you know, at 20-something years old, I was working six and seven nights a week. Wow. And especially playing with my own band as of 1979, mm-hmm. playing 90% original music, and the other 10% was whatever we wanted to play. Exactly. You know, as opposed to, well, this gig here, you have to play this kind of music and that gig. It was a workshop, man. I mean, literally, we tried new stuff constantly. And And let me throw a pin right there and say... We're working on something right now, a, a viral uh, manifestation of that very thing to where uh, there's going to be on KirkWhalen.com a, uh, a, at some point, a nightclub where people can pay a small cover charge and come hang out, you know, and, uh-huh. and we'll be performing, you know, at a, at a place here in Memphis. Uh, and and people can send you know send us a request and say hey play so and so and I'm standing there on stage going okay they're, they're requesting this from Denver so we'll play <laughs> That's cool. and you know what I mean and it'll be great for us because as a band you don't get to do that on the road as much because you know you you kind of have to keep the show especially when it's a package tour you have to keep the show kind of tight and and you mm-hmm. know well this this guy gets 15 minutes and that guy gets 15 you know you don't get to go through your material man i missed that from the old uh, texas club days yeah. where you know we we could we could try out different stuff and just kind of you know go off i think people miss that too yeah oh yeah I've always thought that the advent of uh, of improvisation, which uh, you know, let me just name one band for for example that was just masterful, uh, Mr. Joe Zawinul in Weather Report, and you know, those guys that just uh, just could go on and on and, and continuum, start with a groove and just keep on going, and in one in one session, whether it's a club or whatever, it's they've they've played for five, ten, fifteen, twenty minutes, and they, this thing's morphed into one and two, three different. Different things, <laughs> yeah, right. And that ex- that whole live experiment. I think uh, you're, you're right. I think performing has, and we've heard it from different people that performing some, can sometimes put you in a box. And and you you're sort of saying you do, you want to get back to that open lid and and and, and mess around and, and play with music, right? I do, man. And and I'll tell you, you know, I cut my teeth uh, on the national level with Bob James, and that was how that was what it was like touring with mm-hmm. Bob James. No matter what you may have heard on the record, you know, say he's playing theme from Taxi or sure, whatever. Sure. Man, when we got on the gig, Westchester Lady was a 20-minute song, yeah, you know. Right, right, exactly. And Gary King, you know, would play a bass solo that started out with uh, Takata and Fugue by Bach and then ended up, you know, the Beatles. I mean, you know, he would just go off. You know, it was just the environment was electric because you we were creating on the fly and people love that and i think one of the problems they're having in quote unquote smooth jazz radio is that it, they've taken away all of that and they've canned it and they've 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 overstudied it and they've, they've got their demographics and testing songs and stuff and now man artists are having to basically create songs and and record you know, recordings that mm-hmm. kind of fit a certain format man that's never it was never meant to be like that yeah yeah i totally agree with you Hey, you know, when, when you first started learning and practicing music, uh, we're going back a little further now, <laughs> yeah, when right. you were a kid, the, you know, the drums, I guess, I think I read the drums were your first love, right? Yeah, as any boy, you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, and you also mentioned, I think I read it in your bio, that it was the shininess of the sax that piqued your interest. Uh, yeah, I have to be <laughs> honest. It was, it was more like, you know, a visual love affair. You know, I, I saw you know, they demonstrated all the instruments, the tuba and the clarinet and the whatever. Yeah. And I had actually decided I wanted to play tuba, you know. Uh, as a seventh grader, I walked really? in and said, I'm going to play tuba. I think it's because I was small. I think I must have had a Napoleon complex. But, you know, <laughs> once, I, thing. <laughs> right, once I saw, you know, they demonstrated. And the last one Mr. Henning demonstrated was the was the sax. And just so happens, you know, band directors have to learn all the instruments at, mm-hmm. at least to make a decent sound or demonstrate them and teach you how to play them but he was a saxophone player and you could tell when he saved it for last and this glorious sound came out and it looked so cool i'm like duh this is it 
And not to mention that it was set up, too, because my uncle was a saxophone player. I knew that. But since he didn't live in Memphis, I had never really had a chance to really interact with him until, you know, I know this is by design, you know, Mm -hmm. that I picked that instrument. And sure enough, a few months later, he came through Memphis uh, my uncle Peanuts, of course, now who's more famous than me, and uh, <laughs> you know has his own record. But he came through town, and he he said, "Oh, you know, I heard you playing the saxophones. Or play me something, you know." So I get my horn out, put my little reed on, and I must have sounded terrible. He's like, "Oh man, you sound great! Wow!" Yeah. He's oohing and on, right? And I I said, "Well," he said, "Well, let me see if I can get anything out of that thing, you know." So he puts it in his mouth, and I thought the angels, the heavens had parted. You know, because now I'm listening to a real saxophone player who at the time had been playing for 35, 40 years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, and it and that's the impact that it had on me. And I think from that moment on, I knew I wanted to be really good. And that's why we have to make sure young musicians or I should say kids are exposed to real live musicians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, listen, I'm, I'm, we got something in common. You're, uh, I'm a preacher's kid, <laughs> and you're a preacher's kid. Yes, sir, PK. And uh, I learned how to play piano, and I learned, you know, you know, when I was 12, I got thrown on this horrible piano that I had to learn how to play church music. <laughs> and in your experience, I can pretty much guess that some similarities, uh, you know, are, are there. But your, your life is... You know, in church, and I mean, you come from a pretty uh, deep-rooted uh, family in music with your aunts and uncles, and I mean, explain the depth of of, of the seriousness of of music that uh, that you were exposed to at a young age. Right. Uh, it it was definitely de- uh, meant for me to be in music. People say, "Well, how did you choose music?" And I laugh. I say, "No, music chose me. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it." And you know, I'm telling you. When you look at some of these record contracts, including the first one I signed, uh, you wonder why anybody would choose music. <laughs> but, um, you know, nowadays, that's changing. I think uh, people are getting smarter, and uh, we're starting to look at that pie and saying, no, that little sliver of pie ain't going to work. <laughs> but, um, you know, to say that my grandmothers, both of them were musicians. One was um we're classically trained. She taught piano and voice. Mm-hmm. In fact, she taught Hank Crawford and a lot of my heroes, you know. But my other grandmother, my maternal grandmother, was a gospel singer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so right out the bat, I was exposed to music. My uncles were musical. My aunt could sing, you know. And so uh, I just got a lot of music right out of the bat. Mm-hmm. And and I, I knew that uh, in the church environment, of course, where my dad was pastor, Music was very, very important. And my dad was kind of a uh, avant-garde kind of pastor. He, you know, people, he was known for the emphasis on youth and kind of mm-hmm, mm-hmm. this experimentation. Like, you know, we were playing songs in, with instrumentation and stuff would kind of turn the eye, turn the head of the of the, the more, you know, sort of conservative, you know, churchgoer. Sure. Yeah, more uh, progressive, yeah. Yeah, progressive is what I was looking for. Growing up in Memphis in the 60s, you had, um, you know, music education in itself in the family and the church and the type of thing. But tell me and Rick were just talking about this a little earlier, and we're trying to find something on the web that was really a descriptor as to what was happening at that time with the Memphis sound. I mean, there was something special going on in Memphis region. It was that black gospel, and it was a mix of a little bit of country and white. It was, it was a hodgepodge that it was very, very special to the region. What was that, Kirk? that actually migrated to and turned into what's called the, the Memphis Sound. Yeah, well, I'll give you, I'll give you one word. Yeah. Stacks. Yeah. yeah. S-T-A-X. And it's interesting that we should be talking about this. I just hung up the phone about 30 minutes ago mm. from Wayne Jackson, who was the other half of the Memphis Horns, okay. yeah. Andrew Love being the sax player, uh, who is in bad health right now. But and, uh, but uh, Wayne is the, is the trumpet player with the Memphis Horns. and. Mm-hmm. Today, I uh, took some contest winners from com. Folks came in from Colorado. I took them on a, a visit, um, a tour of the Stax Museum, the oh, Soulsville. Cool. And, um, you know, that really does, I mean, in their words, you know, they said every American should come to Memphis, visit the Stax Museum, visit the National Civil Rights Museum, and basically fill in between the lines of their understanding of the beauty and 
and depth of American culture. Mm -hmm. And there are, say, even black culture that's been so important to the overall picture, but maybe hasn't gotten uh, its just due. But you talk about that period of the 60s. And what was going on here in Memphis, right? musically, man, I mean, there's no other place in the world that that was true. Right. And uh, to go through that museum and, and, and to talk about how this music started out in the slave fields, but ended up basically, uh, you know, the, the whole British rock scene owes, its, <laughs> owes yeah. a, a, a true debt to Memphis and to the Memphis artists. Again, of course, Otis Redding and Sam and Dave and, mm-hmm. and, and Carla Thomas and Rufus Thomas and, and Isaac Hayes and on and on. That music is at the very foundation of popular music. Yeah. And there I was. You're right. I'm sitting there as a kid listening, you know, to the Barquets and two houses down, the drummer who died in the plane crash with Otis Redding and the Barquets, mm-hmm. his little brother of 10 boys, all of whom played drums, his little brother, the youngest Cunningham, Blair Cunningham, was my best friend. And wow. we grew up playing bands, you know, bands like the Exotic Movement. <laughs> and and I look around, you know, 30 years later or 20 years later, I'm living in Paris. Blair is living in London. He's playing with, you know, Paul McCartney and, and Chrissy Hine and Pretenders. And I'm touring with Whitney Houston. And it's like we didn't even realize that we were a part of something that was so foundational to the world music scene. Eddie and I wanted to know if, if we come down to Memphis, will you give us a personal tour of Stax? <laughs> oh, man, I, I, any excuse to go to Stax, man. <laughs> I'm such a big baby. I cry. I, I shed a tear every time I see the yeah. film at the beginning of the tour of Stax Records because it's, a, it's the only soul music museum in the world. Yeah. And so it's not just about Memphis, but yeah. I tell you, it, it's breathtaking to to really understand um, the impact that this music has had on the culture of the world, and again to understand where it came from out of an uh, of an environment that was so racially tense, and there was this just crazy thing going on where black people had to sit in the back of the bus, and right, right. you had to drink out of a certain water fountain. But you would walk in stacks and it was white people and black people making music right. as yeah. if, you know, race what didn't exist, you know. And thus, you look back and you understand that to understand what the, this country is about, you really need to take a look at how the music developed. And Memphis is maybe arguably the, the, the greatest uh, location in, in the country to really yeah. study that. Well, we need to definitely get down there and check that out sometime. Yeah, man. And next door, by the way, is the Stax Academy, oh, yeah? where I'm, I'm artist in residence. Very proud of that, that I actually worked with kids and, and, and I performed with them last night. I t- took a little picture and put it on, on KirkWhalem.com. Yeah, I saw that. That's yeah, cool. and they're good. amazing. And they are absolutely from the same neighborhood with the same challenges, uh, forgotten by most of society. But they, like their predecessors, Al Green and Isaac Hayes and David Porter and Maurice White of Earth, Wind & Mm-hmm. they're going to change the world. Yeah. Well, hey, another another great name, Aretha Franklin, and that's somebody mm-hmm. that uh, you've mentioned uh, that, that it has influenced you. And, you know, granted, she's an amazing talent and uh, undeniably a legend. And what did you, as a sax player, take from Aretha's influence? Well, first of all, I'll say that Aretha Franklin is another one who grew up in Memphis. Uh-huh. Uh, and, in fact, right around the corner from where my dad grew up. And um, Aretha Franklin... For me, before even Whitney Houston and other singers who have influenced me, uh, Aretha was the one who really kind of combined all of the my childhood influences, those being, of course, gospel, black gospel, and country, and rock and roll, and all of that, to, in, into a certain phrasing, a certain approach to playing a melody that had a kind of a emotional... Um, immediacy, if you will. Yeah. It's like it, it, it was power charged, you know, like that melody really counted. And um, that's something that totally profoundly affected me. And I, I definitely couldn't, uh, I couldn't have done it, I think, without hearing Aretha Franklin saying, ain't no way, you know. Yeah. Hey, Kirk, your first album was uh, 
was an album called Floppy Disk, 85. And uh, tell us a little bit about this project and some of the musicians that you uh, invited to play on your first inaugural solo album. And uh, what kind of experience was it that you putting your first one out? Yeah, it was, a, it was a tremendous experience, primarily working with Bob James, who mm-hmm. was arguably uh, one of the greatest um, jazz and, and pop producers. And... Um, at the same time, it was kind of experimental because right around that time was the beginning of the digital um, intervention, uh, the uh, the takeover of the music industry. No, not. But, uh-huh. but it was definitely, you know, the title floppy disk was significant because Bob had started messing around with computer uh, sequencing and recording, mm-hmm. subsequently recording. And, uh, you know, he he couldn't help but make that a part of what he was doing with me uh, and i was i'm kind of a, a sort of quasi geeky you know i like gadgets and so i i really enjoyed that and sure to this day as we sit here uh i'm staring at my laptop now but but that technological revolution uh you know this this was in 85 so that yeah. was that was when it all kind of right. came together you know mm-hmm. And that's, again, that's why we came up with the title Floppy Disk. Yeah, isn't it true that, uh, you're right, right around the 85 in technology, I mean, you're, you're talking about technology that was the sequencers, the Lindrum was making its impact. That's right. You know, getting to my question, which is, you know, what was this first album as successful as you hoped for? Um, well, I don't think any of my records have been as successful as I, as I <laughs> hoped for. But, <laughs> but, um, but just to say that um, I think... To analyze floppy disks from a success point of view, I'd have to really put all my records in this in this category and say I think I don't think I'm the average um, instrumental jazz or instrumental R and B artist. I think mm-hmm. there's something uh, kind of peculiar about what I do and who I am. It has mm-hmm. to do absolutely with my faith in Christ and, and it has to do absolutely with the fact that I never could quite settle into, oh, well, this is the formula that works. Let me yeah. do this. And, you know, I'm just, you know, I'm basically a preacher with a horn in my hand. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Kind of, you know, what it amounts to. And I think, I think that's, uh, it is what it is. And I think um, there's certain radio formats that, have room for that and certain ones that didn't and right. and I had to you know come to a, a point of just being comfortable in my own skin and uh but floppy disk maybe was the first uh manifestation of that where you know it never really stacked up I remember uh it never stacked up with what the, ex- the expectations were um but we did garner some fans along the way. I remember Kenny G had come out around the same time. In fact, yeah. just before that, I was on Arista. Long story, record never came out, thank God. But, um, <laughs> you know, I remember the A&R person at that label, that particular label, said, you know what, well, listen to this right here. And basically, can you come up with something like this? And it was Kenny G. He had played a Kenny G record for me. <laughs> and and I, I pretty much said, no, I don't think I can, you know. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Yeah, well, a couple of years after you released uh, Floppy Disc, it was guitar legend uh, Larry Carlton tracked you down. And, and soon after that, you were out in L.A. tracking a, an album with him. What album was that? I, I wasn't able to find that, hmm. that that you worked on with Larry. And tell me a little about the experience working with him. Right. I think the name of the record was Discovery. Oh, okay. Uh, Larry Carlton. And okay. I'm not going to stand by that. But if not, <laughs> it was right in that period. Because after that, I worked with him a lot. So, um I lose track, but man, it was a big revelation for me in a few ways. Um, when he called me, he, you know, he said, "Hey, you know, this." I was on the road with Bob James at the time, and um, I get a message from Larry Carlton. He's like, "Hey, you don't know me. This is Larry Carlton," and I'm like, just dropped the phone. And uh, <laughs> he said, "Man, I I heard your this song on the radio, and I pulled over." And found the phone and called the radio station. Of course, at that time, in 84, I mean, what, 86, uh-huh. you didn't have any cell phones. So, you know, he said, I pulled over and and I found out that it was you and, and I tracked you down. <laughs> and it was a, the song was called Afterthought. And that song, again, we redid. We closed out the new record round trip uh, with a song called Afterthought. Mm-hmm. And Larry um, says, man, I, I just would love for you to come to L.A. and play on my record. You know, it was literally like that. And um, so I did. And the, it's almost like within an hour of 
checking into my hotel room, I realized that I needed to live in LA. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, I just looked, I was in Universal Plaza, you know, Universal Studios, and I'm up on the 20 something floor and I looked out at the valley. I'm like, why don't I live here? And so Ruby and I uh, moved out there and, and man, from that point I was playing sessions, you know, all day, every day, you know, seven days a week. In those boom days in, in L.A. where, you know, just recording was going crazy and the record labels were moving to L.A. was obviously the good decision for you because obviously you ended up on, on a lot of people's albums like Streisand and Al Jarreau, Quincy Jones. And uh, it, it was uh, you were in the right place at the right time, weren't you? Absolutely. And, and, but I will say that it, it, it there was an adjustment period as well you know where yeah, how's that? you first that? move out there and like, okay i'm here and you kind of <laughs> sit by the phone and it finally rings and it's like the you know the the light company saying you're late on the bill and you know so definitely the phone was not ringing right away and uh so it it took a while i remember playing one particular gig i played at a at a hotel with a tina turner impersonator uh so (laughs) i was like i I said i feel like the children of israel i'm like i left egypt at least we had food you know in, in texas you know and and so here I am out here playing in a hotel, the Ramada Inn with the Tina Turner impersonator. <laughs> You're still you out know. in the desert, man. You know, so so it was great when I finally did start getting calls. And by the way, when that did happen, it was really because of my sound. That's why I can never get the big head about, you know, any, you know, really tricky techniques that I have. But it was more like a voice, you know, I right. guess from listening to Aretha Franklin and folks like that. I felt like I was singing as opposed to playing, you know. Yeah. What uh, in when you were in the L.A. scene over there, uh, you know, wh- which gigs uh, seemed now that you look back at that at that time when you were there, wh- which gigs seemed the the most significantly uh, Im- important or they they just shine for you? You know, the one looking back, you know. Yeah, I, there weren't very many gigs that stand out in my mind mm-hmm. um, in L.A. because again, once I got there. I was touring, much like here. You know, I live in Memphis, but I don't play here much. I'm basically touring. But uh, but I will say this one gig. I, I played a little jazz club called Le Café. And um, I had he- heard about this bass player named Ricky Minor. And I said, hey, man, you know, Kirk Whalum, I play sax. I'd love to have you play on this gig with me, blah, blah, blah. Really nice guy. And so we um, we played a gig together. Basically, I hired him. And uh, he said, well, by the way, man, I, I just... Um, you know, I, I played with Whitney Houston as well, you know, and oh, that's cool, blah, 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 blah. And so, you know, a lot of guys do that, jazz guys who, you know, have pop gigs or country gigs for a living, like my son. And so the next day I get this call from Ricky Minor said, man, I don't want to say this last night, but um, I I just got promoted to musical director for Whitney Houston. And I, long story made short, I convinced her she needed a new band, but not just any band, a band of like studio top players, you yeah. know. And like a Whitney Houston band, you know, sure. he, this is when he first convinced her to do that. He said, but it's going to cost you probably five or six times as much as you're paying now. Mm-hmm. And um, and she said, cool. <laughs> and so <laughs> he's so he said, um, man, would you like to go on the road with Whitney Houston? And I, it's like that moment, like stood still in time. Like, wow, I, I never thought about doing that. You know, I was so focused on doing my thing and right. my this and my that. I never thought about going on the road working for someone else like that, a big pop star. Uh-huh. And, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll admit, you know, the money helped me make the decision. And, uh, you know, when I found out how much we'd be making. And so I said, yeah, I'd love to do it. <laughs> and um, it, it was absolutely, um, uh, first of all, it was the first time I'd ever had a quote unquote job where yeah. I knew where my money was going to come from for the next months. You know, that that was a very unique feeling as a, as an artist, <laughs> you know, cause they don't work like that for artists. You know, right. we're, we're basically trying to fill up the calendar. And uh, so that was kind of cool, but also just playing with her traveling the world, you know, playing behind someone like that, really in a supporting role and, and playing with someone, a thoroughbred, true artist like right, her exactly, sure. was an amazing, amazing experience I'll never forget. So I always thank Ricky. Now, people know Ricky Minor now as the guy who is the head of the American Idol band. Oh, yeah, and, that's right. Um, yeah, as well as many, many TV shows and many other productions. But Ricky was the guy that, that kind of, you know, um, he sort of introduced that chapter in my life. 
where all of a sudden now I'm playing on the, the I'm playing the sax solo according to someone who studies statistics I'm playing the sax solo on the song I Will Always Love You from the Bodyguard well that solo is the most listened to saxophone solo in history amazing wow I'm, again now now I hear that statistic I can I say okay well that would be John Coltrane on Miles <laughs> Kind of Blue or that right, would be you right. know but no the, 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 the solo that more people have heard look at that in any than any of the solo is the one I played on I Will Always Love You. <laughs> and that was, again, I, I have to thank Ricky Minor for that, and I have to thank Whitney Houston for that. And the quick story of that is that we really didn't, we weren't supposed to be on that project. She wanted to record that song live on the set. And the producers were like, oh, great, you know, this diva, she doesn't know what she's talking about, she's never done a movie, and now she wants to record live. Bye, bye. You know, we don't do that. You know, <laughs> we, we got too many other concerns, you know. Sure. And but, you know, they went back and forth and she said, well, put it like this. Go ahead and, and get your own band because she not only wants to do it live on the set, she wants to have her band there playing live on the set. So now they're really pulling their hair out. <laughs> you know, they got to be concerned with all these visual elements and as well recording her audio and this band. You know, it just is not done. And, you know, finally she said, well, fine, you put a band together of your your hotsy totsy, you know, studio guys, since you don't believe my band is all studio players, you go ahead and put a band together, get a track done, get somebody to sing it, because if I sing it, I'm going to do it live to the set and my band is going to play. Yeah. She put it on those terms. And that, may I say, the rest is history, you know. <laughs> uh, there we were. In fact, on the bodyguard, when you see that that scene, uh-huh. we're actually backstage. We're set up with mics and all that and baffles and all that. And we're playing. And, and she, you know, and she delivered. And the rough mix of that song, literally, they didn't allow them to post-produce it or mix it or add this or add that. The rough mix, the DAT tape, the digital audio tape of that song is the record that you hear. Really? That made history, yeah. That's very cool. It all went down right there. They handed the guy the rough mix. I love that. Yeah, Clive (laughs) Davis, you know, is is like, well, this is it. And David Foster's like, what do you mean this is it? I mean, you know, we got to do this. We got to fix this. We got to blah, blah. No, no, no. This is it. (laughs) This is it. Nice and live and raw. I like that. You know? That's cool. Well, you were definitely with Whitney at the pinnacle of her career, and that must have just been a, a pretty amazing experience. It was, and my prayer is that that won't be considered the pinnacle, that that she'll come back and she'll come back even stronger, you know. And yeah. It has happened before, you know. Yeah, really. Like jumping ahead a little bit, to 1995, you released another solo album called Cachet, mm-hmm. and that featured uh, your old friend Bob James yeah, and, and Bob. also Gerald Albright, Niles Rogers, Brenda Russell, and several other, you know, really top-notch musicians. And this album spent several weeks at number one in the jazz charts. And was this the first time that one of your solo albums appeared at number one? I believe it was. It was Cachet, you say? Yeah. Right. Yes. And, and of course, now I have to go back and, and uh, jog my memory. But <laughs> absolutely. In fact, um, I have to give props to Philippe Sace right. uh, for that because Philippe was the producer of that record. And Philippe, um, wow, I mean... My connection with France and all of that, mm-hmm. just the way that we can, we got together uh, was very unique. You know, I had studied in France as a 19-year-old and uh, studied French. And later, when my career got started, I did a session for Philippe in New York. Mm-hmm. We hooked up and because, you know, speaking French, he, he loved it because he didn't get to speak French very much in New York. <laughs> and um, so um, when we decided to do this record, it started because he took a snippet from a song. This is done a lot now, but in, in, back in this time, it was pretty unique to take a snippet of a solo I had played for him, for this French artist. And he took it, turned it around, turned the time around, and he made it this song called Cachet. He wrote a song out of it. Mm-hmm. And... um you know, from there we, you know, we went off to the races and did this record. But it was absolutely a, a, a very successful record for me. You did two covers on that album. One was uh, Sting's "Fragile," or as you have it titled, "Fragilidad," mm-hmm. and the other one was uh, uh, "Over Somewhere Over the Rainbow." Yeah. Um, is there? I mean, I was just curious. Is there a reason why you decided to, to cover these two particular songs on this album? Or do they have like a personal connection for you? 
For sure, Over the Rainbow is a song that represents my years of wandering in Texas. You know, we're in the club scene there in Austin and Houston and Dallas, where we would just experiment with different songs and, mm-hmm. you know, literally just off the cuff. And I had never even played Over the Rainbow until just one day, you know, one, one night in the club, I played it. And from that point on, they wouldn't let me stop. I had to play it basically every night. And uh, so we eventually recorded that on Cachet. Mm-hmm. I found out later that Richard Elliott had <laughs> the same experience that, you know, he's like known for this song. And I was wondering if people thought I maybe copied him or something, with, you know. <laughs> but, the, uh, but the other song, definitely same thing. Fragile was a song that absolutely was recommended by a producer. And it was not Philippe on that particular song. And right now I can't think who it was. But um it was he picked it because he knew that spiritually speaking that it would be a message that uh would resonate with me and mm-hmm. and you know Brenda Russell sang it, so that's definitely not a bad combination well you know and, and you're working with philip uh say so, you know just for the information of our you know our, our audience you know this is the infamous keyboardist and composer, and he's worked with everyone uh, from Al Jarreau to Demiola to Sanborn. I've got tons of his of his work, but um, you know when he worked on Cachet for you, you know one of the tracks which was joined at the hip, it uh, it really brought you your first Grammy nomination. Is that right? That's right, man. That's right. Yeah, joined at the hip was uh, you know was another really important record for me, and actually. Mm-hmm. If you can imagine, you know, your mentor, you know, that being Bob James, you know, you're invited to do a duet record with him, you know, uh, on equal par. So that was a kind of a graduation, as it were, and um, to work in New York with some great musicians. And, and that record to this day really stands up. Um, it stands the test of time. And I'll say, you know, as we were experimenting with electronics and all that, we still never, I don't think we got... The, confused you know we knew that the primary thing is always going to be live musicians and real instruments yeah. but we liked the idea since it was going to happen anyway that technology was going to happen uh-huh. to try to harness it and make it a, you know be creative with it you know right you know one of the things I, I thought was really cool is how you've this is this is jumping ahead again fused jazz with gospel and you have a couple of albums that, that do just that the gospel according to jazz and I think the other one's the Gospel According to Jazz, Chapter Two. two. Yeah. Yes. And was it a? Tell me about the challenge that you might have had incorporating, you know, jazz into gospel, or did this just come naturally? Right. Well, it did come naturally, and I'll say to add to that list, uh, we just finished uh, Chapter Three of the Gospel According to Jazz, and that's uh-huh. hopefully going to come out this year, and that'll cool. feature George Duke and Layla Hathaway, and my brother Kevin and Doc Powell, and just a lot of Whalems. Uh-huh. <laughs> but. Um, you know, I'll say that another couple of records that are in that category for me are Hymns in the Garden, mm-hmm. for which we got a, a, a Grammy nomination. That's it's correct, a beautiful yeah. duet record with John Stoddard. Stoddard, and, um, Mark Harris, and all those guys. Yeah, and also we uh, The Christmas Message is another, what I consider to be a gospel record of sorts. And to say, I don't really believe it was a matter of fusing two things together. Yeah. I think um, it came naturally, number one. It, it was an outflowing of who I am. Uh, I belong to Jesus, and and my music is an expression of His grace in my life, and it's as simple as that. But but to say that the musical manifestation of that really is that the gospel with a capital G is the message; it means good news. Mm-hmm. And the jazz part of it is more like the the car that it's riding in, or the packaging, as it were, mm-hmm. for this incredible message. So it's one is the substance, and the other is more the conduit. And uh, we don't get that confused. We know that the conduit can be ever so beautiful and creative and and impactful and make you cry. But still, it's the message that has the ultimate impact. So Mm -hmm. you can't lose with that. When you hear someone like a C.C. Winans or a Whitney Houston, and you say, what is it that separates them? Or Aretha Franklin, for that matter. It's that they're singing about something, um, even if it's not directly in the title line or the lyric, they're singing about something or someone in this case who they know intimately and have put their faith and trust in. So, you know, that's what makes gospel music so powerful. And the gospel according to jazz, I think, is even that much more powerful because of the natural uh, fit of such an incredible message about such an incredible person mm-hmm. that is in a is wrapped in a package that's so flexible and so adaptable and there's so much depth 
in this music called jazz because it's coming from the heart. You're improvising. You're creating something out of nothing, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense. You know, yes, you have training. Yes, you have all this preparation. You have the structure of the song. But in the moment, you're in the moment. And so what's in your heart is coming out. And in this case, it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you can't lose with that. You know, um, the best way I can describe it is Mr. John Coltrane at the end of a very difficult life. It all made sense with him with his uh, very last album. Uh, a Love Supreme. A Love Supreme, yeah. And, and and my dad used to joke with me a little bit about it. He said, the neat thing about jazz is that's what's going to be played in heaven. You know, it's going to be just, just. I I like your dad already. And uh, he says maybe uh, on the side you'll hear a little bit of mariachi music. Just <laughs> mariachi también. Uh, I'm Latino, so musica I'm like, <laughs> So we're going to get some jazz Brasiera. and some mariachi bands, you know. Yeah. So I'm looking, sort of looking forward to that in a way. But uh, y salsa y toda la música la música. <laughs> Estoy de acuerdo. Estoy de acuerdo con tu papá. Con tu papá. <laughs> um, I want to. Uh, actually, I want to go back and and uh, you, you chose um, Philip again for your 2007 release round trip. And uh, any reason why you came back to Philip? What was he going to offer to you? What did you want him to inject again? Um, you know, in, into this project round trip. Well, absolutely. The concept was to go back where I started. And to cherry pick things that we felt like were worth doing again. And um, who better than Philippe, who was so much a part of that first uh, informative phase of my career. Mm-hmm. And so um, it was a natural uh, decision to, to have Philippe you know, work on this record. Yeah. And we even one thing we did that was really cool, we got Jeff Golub, our mutual friend, to come join us here in Memphis at the Stax Museum, again, which is built on the original site of Stax Records. Uh-huh. Uh, we went in and recorded a song in the museum. It was like oh, the really? first song ever recorded there since the days of, you know, those big hits. And, Check it out. Wow. Yeah, cool. and that song was Glow. And, um, yeah, so, no, definitely Philippe was was a natural choice. And, yeah. and uh, I still, you know, speak French, and I still have a very mu- a strong connection with that yeah. culture. Well, your musical credit list of the players on it were literally enormous, but a few of the people, you know, Mark James, guitar, James McMillan, Pete Murray. Uh, you even had Earl Klug just do an incredible job on on a track. But um, one uh, one session player that uh, really stood out for me and Rick, me and Rick are big Toto fans. Mm-hmm. And you actually uh, work with Simon Phillips. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right, man. Yeah. Uh, Tell us about that experience a little bit. About, uh, well, with, again, with, you know, as sometimes happens in in our industry, sometimes we have we do stuff where we're not in the same room at the same time. And unfortunately, yeah, yeah. that was what happened here. But but Simon was a very close friend of Philippe's. And, uh, you know, Philippe was like, no, Simon was going to kill this. And, uh, and sure enough he did and uh, you know I'll say that you know working with all these great musicians was incredible and that's something that's you know that's been a thread that's fortunately weaved through my career but man I tell you the thing that separates this record uh, in a big way for me is working with my family man oh my goodness this is the first record that you know really I was intentional about that because I kind of steered away from it for years I I thought it was a little noxious you know saying oh my family but you know what a friend of mine said hey tomorrow Solicists can do it, and if they're good, <laughs> you know, why not? And sure enough, I had to say, man, my I have some incredible musicians in my no, family. Tell me about it. Kevin, Kenneth, Kyle. You know, once you decided to bring in the family, what, uh, you know, how do they take that invitation and working together? Yeah, well, you know, I think it's natural. It's what we do anyway, you know, uh, make music at, at the family reunion or whatever. But but it was um, it was a natural. I, I in fact, I think when my uncle, who was, again, singer, but originally a saxophone player and still plays incredibly well, when he and I and my nephew, Kenneth, are playing saxophone, you know, side by side, mm-hmm. I really got it. I thought, okay, whether or not you get on board with this perpetuation of this beautiful music that's in your in your family tree, it's going to happen uh-huh. because it's already started again with another generation, with my son Kyle, with my, my nephews, you know, it's it's going to happen. So, mm-hmm. so, yeah, it was such a beautiful thing, man. And I think that people identify with that when they hear the song Round Trip and they're hearing my uncle and my brother. And I mean, you can hear it. You can hear that that's another level of beauty uh, yeah. when family, you know, gets together and does something. 
Hey guys, since we're on the topic of the album Round Trip, which is Kirk's latest release, let's take a quick break and check out a sample of the title track from the album. This is Round Trip from our guest, Kirk Whalem. a sample of the tune Round Trip from Kirk Whalem's latest album, aptly titled Round Trip. And uh, if you guys are interested in checking out uh, the rest of the album, go to kirkwhalem.com and you'll get all kinds of information there on how to buy it and where to buy it. That's correct, yeah. Yeah, I just wanted to uh, ask you what uh, 2008 holds for you, Kirk. Uh, do you have any tours planned? Uh, did you actually go on tour in support of Round Trip, or, or have you been touring on support of that? Absolutely. We did uh, several dates last year and uh-huh. and some this year, and of course we'll be doing more this summer Great. Um, to support Round Trip. And, and there's lots of stuff on KirkWhalem.com about that. And, and in fact, a lot of uh, what we're doing now in terms of, um, you know, new directions and fun stuff about the record is on the website. And uh, as well, you know, I, I've been doing a lot of uh, sort of post-production on this new gospel record. Mm-hmm. So uh, as we go out and tour behind Round Trip, uh, I've also been, you know, trying to get myself in gear because I've got to finish up this the post-production on the gospel according to jazz, chapter three. Yeah, right. um, so that's, you know, there's a lot of that in the coming year. Uh, we've got a, a really cool... Um, functionality now on our site where we're going to have video available where people can come by and just you know sign up and watch us play in whatever place we happen to be you know and that's going to eventually be even more uh immediate you know where again as i said people are going to be able to stop by and and actually sit in on a live set um so that's we're doing a lot of that we feel like we can reach a lot more people. You know, if, if the tour doesn't come through your town, no big deal. You know, come hang out and send us an email. Not email, but text us right and say, hey, sure. play this song and we'll just play it. So yeah. that's a lot of what we're working on now. That's very cool. Well, Kirk, uh, I really appreciate your time. Uh, it's been a real pleasure chatting with you. And no doubt. Uh, hopefully uh, we can do this again down the road, catch up with you and see what's happening. Man, I, I hope so. And, and again, much success on your site. And, and um, thanks for what you guys are doing. It's such, a, it's such an important connection that you guys are providing with the, with the audience. So uh, more power to you, man. Sounds thanks. I appreciate good. that. All right. Well, take care. All right, guys. All righty. Bye-bye. Special thanks to Kirk Whalem for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Our goal is to bring you a new episode of Inside Music Cast every other week. Be sure to check out InsideMusicCast.com for continuing updates, including our People's Forum, where you can chat about all things music with Inside Music Cast listeners from around the world. That's InsideMusicCast.com with one C. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast. Thanks for downloading Inside Music Cast, the podcast devoted to the musicians, fans, and the people who make the music business happen. Your subscription is appreciated, so be sure to check your podcatcher for our next episode. You can also visit InsideMusicCast.com for additional content. 
If you'd like to contact us via email, the address is input at insidemusiccast.com. 